1: In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
2: Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate.
1: Oh, I'm sure she's right.
2: But yeah, well, I ain't spending
3: any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking
0: creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves.
1: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate.
3: Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs>
1: Hello and thanks for giving us your time for this episode of Democracy Sausage Extra, which comes out of the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny and with me today are a couple of terrific people, both no strangers to Democracy Sausage. I'm talking about Professor Frank Bongiorno, who is Professor of History at the ANU here. And another historian, Associate Professor Chris Wallace, formerly of ANU, still one of ours, really. I like to think, but these days based up the road at the University of Canberra's Fifty Fifty by Twenty Thirty Foundation. Welcome to you both. G'day, Mark. Now we're talking today on this edition about the issue du jour, the issue of uh, issue of this week, and uh, perhaps the issue of. Um, our political lives, really, in a sense, uh, and that being uh, those cataclysmic events which occurred on November 11, 1975, when the Labor government, led by Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, was sacked, uh, and, of course, all of the uh, the events leading up to that and the, uh, the febrile history of it after that um, – it's called the dismissal, mention it to anyone really and they know what you're talking about even if they don't know all of the details but we did get some fascinating details some backroom workings as it were or or however you would like to describe it the correspondence leading up to this fateful decision that uh, Sir John Kerr, the then Governor-General took to remove the commission or relieve the Prime Minister of his commission and, um, and install a Liberal Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser Frank, fr- perhaps first to you Anything that came out of this that absolutely sort of gobsmacked you or surprised you? These, these palace letters that were released just yesterday as we go to re-record this now?
3: Not, not gobsmacked. I think it, it provides a, an unprecedented kind of account of, um, probably the best we're ever likely to have of, of, of Kerr's thinking and psychology. Um, we have his memoirs which were, um, published just a few years later, but they were for public consumption. Um, and, you know, were very much his effort to vindicate what he'd done retrospectively. Um, these obviously do provide a sense of his thinking, his perspective, uh, his character, I guess, um, as he's actually confronting, uh, this situation. Uh, but I'd add one rider, it, it's also performance. I mean, he's performing for the palace and, uh, Um, we need to be careful, I I think, to to see them as a simple reflection of what he's thinking. I mean, I take Gough Whitlam's point that Kerr was in many ways deceitful um, and, uh, you know, we need to also treat what he's saying here with a reasonable level of caution as well, because, you know, he's producing something, um, for the private secretary, effectively, of the, of, of the, um, of the Queen, Sir Martin Charteris, with, with the idea that either the contents of the letter would be, you know, discussed with the Queen or she would read it directly. And, and, and so I think we need to always take that into account when we have a look at what's there. But we, we, we certainly do get, um, a, a new perspective, if you like, on, on Kerr's, um, Approach, the whole thing. Uh,
1: Chris Wallace, he was certainly um, fairly conscientious in his uh, contacts with the palace, wasn't he? I mean, he was, uh, he was writing lots of letters. He was keeping the palace up to date with what he was doing. And as Frank says, you can certainly see an element of, of performance in this and you can see his, what I would say, is quite fawning attitude to, to the Queen, to the palace, uh, to the whole class really. What was your? Would you agree with that? For a start,
2: I would agree, and I I think at the top we've got to say hats off to Jenny Hocking, Mm. uh, the historian and Whitlam biographer, who has put literally years of her life into getting these letters into the public domain. What a mighty achievement! She was very interesting upon release day when she said how shocked she was at the sustained, uh, lengthy, frequent, long, intimate. Exchange going on between Australia's Governor General and uh, the office of a monarch on a distant shore, and uh, it's it's really surprising when you see headlines like we did this morning in certain newspapers, uh, which have a bit of a uh, have a bit of form in relation to the dismissal. But we might get to that a bit later. Uh, the idea that these letters show that there was no involvement by the palace in the dismissal given the intimate 1,000-page-plus correspondence between Yarralumla and the palace is simply farcical. Um, I think one of the things, too, that's worth noting here is this is not just an event in Australia of enormous significance. This has huge implications for the confidentiality of uh, vice-regal and regal correspondence around the world. Uh, We won't get into it today, Mark, but of course there's a long-running struggle in Britain legally to make public correspondence that Prince Charles has uh, made in his lifetime. So this is a super big deal in Australia. It's a big deal internationally and Jenny Hocking, honestly... She just deserves a medal for this.
1: Yeah, but it's really interesting that that point about the correspondence. I, I think you've both touched on it here. But uh, the palace's view, and it was confirmed even yesterday in a statement put out after the release of these letters by the by the National Archives, which was forced to do it by by our courts. But um, uh, the palace's view was that this was private correspondence. Presumably, that was Kerr's view at the time as well. Uh, that was the orthodox view. Um, which seems completely odd and and out of sync with these times, really, uh, particularly given the the gravity of the decisions that were made and and, and, uh, the subject matter, which was the the governance of Australia. That's an important matter fundamental to the rights of Australian citizens to know about and to have maximum transparency about. But uh, this was a long fight even to get to this point. So I guess that's an interesting aspect of it, isn't it, uh, Frank, that they thought it was going to remain silent or, or or hidden, which presumably changes the character of the conversation. I mean, we've seen plenty of politicians' text messages coming out recently and, you know, they're not the same sorts of things they say publicly. So people do say things differently when they don't think they're going to be subject to scrutiny.
3: Yeah, I mean, I suspect the players in this would have imagined that at some point um, they would become historical documents that that in fact would probably become public Um uh, they were deposited in the National Archives, um, what, by David Smith, I think. And, and, I mean, I don't think there could have been any expectation they would remain closed for all time.
1: But probably for their lifetimes.
3: But po- possibly, yeah, possibly for their lifetimes, likely for their lifetimes. Um, I, I suppose, you know, the, the palace's statement yesterday indicates that from their point of view, if they'd been basically running the show, we would never have seen them. And, and indeed, my understanding is it would have required the palace's consent, even when it gets to, what is it, 2029, 20, for those to have been been released. One thing that did occur to me as I was reading through them was the, the, the sheer fatuousness of of, of, of attempting to, to argue that these were private or personal correspondence in view of their content. I mean, um, they're, they're utterly bound up in constitutional issues, uh, political issues, the whole matter of how we're governed, and 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 the idea that that these, you know, shouldn't have been subject to the Archives Act and to. The, 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 the normal treatment, really, of official documents, I think, seems even more absurd in light of what we actually find in them. Um, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, someone writing to their mum about uh, personal matters. Uh, it's about government. And, and, and in fact, it, yes, it touches on the gravest crisis in, in, in the, the political history of the country.
1: So, Chris, let's get to what they actually say um, because... There was, there was this long running, uh, discussion in Australia about what these palace letters would say. What had Kerr said to the palace? What had the palace said back? Uh, some people thought that the palace had, um, that the Queen herself had taken an active role, that perhaps she wanted to get rid of this grubby socialist government, you know, out in the Antipodes and, and, um, and that, uh, you know, she'd played some sort of active role. What did the letters actually show us?
2: Most people expecting something that was dynamite from these letters, we're probably thinking of the immediate period around the dismissal itself. Mark, what is really significant about this correspondence is the 1,000-plus pages that extend back to a year before the dismissal. And you don't even need to go to the letters themselves. You must, Even if you look at the indexes of what are in this 1,000-plus pages, what you see is a systematic intense briefing by the Governor-General of the Palace of what is going on in Australian politics. And what is going on in Australian politics is this. There's political destabilisation within the Liberal Party as Malcolm Fraser is jostling to displace Billy Snedner's opposition leader. There's turmoil in the Labour Party as some uh, controversial things to do with fundraising, the Iraqi loans, the Kemlani affair, so-called, are happening now, it is the job of the governing general to keep the palace informed about these things, but what Kerr is doing in this incredibly detailed reporting, uh, to the point you always almost get the point at a few points that the palace is going, oh, my God, this is, you know, a bit too detailed. Uh, what he's doing is a year out from the dismissal, he is pointing to the possibility of the liberal opposition denying supply that is blocking the Whitlam government's budget bills in the Senate a year out from the actual dismissal. And as he does this, he's uh, angsting continuously about his own position, his own awesome responsibilities. How is he going to handle this? And the thousand plus pages are to a very significant extent uh, a dialogue between Kerr and Martin Charteris and through Martin Charteris, effectively the Queen.
1: And Martin Charteris is the secretary to the Queen. That's right. And so
2: so their correspondence is effectively, it provides a cutout for the Queen. So when Kerr sends a letter to Charteris, he knows it's going to the Queen. But for form's sake, it's going to Charteris, and Charteris replies. But the convention is that, you know, they all know, all the three people in this correspondence know that the Queen's reading it. Uh, And even in the index to the letters... Uh, the Queen's interest, uh, you know, appreciation of the briefing, she's intensely engaged with this. Uh, it Kerr is shaping their perception of what's going on in Australia at a time of crisis in which I might say News Limited played a very prominent role in, in, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, beating the Christ out of some of these things. I mean, if you look back on the Whitlam government now, uh, it wasn't that much worse than, you know, the worst peaks, worst troughs of the Turnbull government dysfunction, really.
3: Gough should have appointed Rupert to become High Commissioner in
2: London as <laughs> Rupert wanted. Yeah. yeah, that would have solved a lot of problems. So what Kerr is doing, his, had a more direct conduit. he is shaping the palace's view of what's going on in Australia. And the palace in turn is shaping Kerr's views about what is possible. And in that sense, uh, Martin Charteris, the Queen's private secretary, emerges effectively as Kerr's coach in what is possible. And there's a critical letter, I think it's the 24th of September, where Charteris writes a relatively short letter to Kerr, and then Martin Charteris takes his pen and writes a little PS at the bottom. And he points to the opinion of a Canadian constitutional law expert called Eugene Forsey, never heard of him before. Eugene Forsey's special thing is if there's a blocking of budget, yeah. if there's a blocking of, of budget bills, you're perfectly entitled to cause call it a double dissolution. So Charteris is adding this as a handwritten PS. He's basically giving to Kerr, who's a lawyer, uh, his reading on how to justify what it's quite clear he wants to do, you know, rel- well, relatively early well, uh, in that, the piece. That's a really
1: fascinating point. Can we take that up? Do you, do you conclude from that, as Chris uh, is concluding there, that, Charteris was of the view that that's what Kerr ought to do, or that it was a. I mean, do, do it, for a start, do you think that's a, a fair interpretation of Charteris's uh, personal opinion? Was he was he merely saying, "Well, these are the options that you have in a harmless way," or did he take the view that uh, this may well, you know, was he was he sort of essentially highlighting for Kerr this possibility? What, what what's your view of that, Frank?
3: I probably don't entirely agree with. Chris, on that, I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, obviously, Ch- Chatteris's letters uh, do, I think, sometimes probably cross boundaries that, that in retrospect, he probably would have been better not to have crossed. And that letter, letter that Chris mentions, may well be, be one of them. I mean, he actually says, if I remember rightly, that the, the quote, um, well, it's not a quote from Fawzi. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a, a summary, I suppose, of what he understood to be Fawzi's argument. And 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 he he talks about um, a, a dissolution being granted in the circumstances of of supply being cut off. Now, um, it's not clear to me from that that he was necessarily saying that you know uh, a governor general should go in and dismiss a government that can't get supply, although. Uh, Fawzi's still alive, by the way. So Fawzi's book is written decades before and he's still going strong in the 1970s and was a great supporter of what Kerr had done. They corresponded. There's a chapter in Kerr's memoirs about all this. Um, so, you know, leaving aside what Fawzi actually says in the book, I think Charteris's, um, representation of it in that letter is less, it's more non-committal, I think. I mean, the, the more critical letter I would have thought, Chris, is that later one where uh, he says more about the reserve powers, and he basically says they 're real, they exist they 're hardly ever used um, uh, the fact that they 're hardly ever used still makes them useful because people know they 're there, and they should only be used in the most as a last resort in the most extreme circumstances. It seems to me that 's the moment uh where he really would have been better off just keeping mum uh he would yeah. have been, because I think that that 's the moment where he he's not qualified. Uh, that's, the moment, qual- yeah. that's the moment. That's the moment where yeah. the
1: palace comes closest to yeah. framing what ends up being the event, uh, foreshadowing it, and arguably therefore having put it on the radar.
2: This you- this is it's very important before we go any further to say that how evidence is interpreted and understood mm. is a very big issue in relation to Charteris, the correspondence, and Fawzi. Now. If you take any individual piece, you might come to the conclusion Frank's just done about that letter, and it would be completely reasonable. But Kerr is a lawyer, right? Mm. Charteris bothers in his own pen by hand to add this PS. What does Kerr do? What would we do? That he would have done what I did yesterday, which is get the Fawzi books out of the National Library, right? And Fawzi is a full bottle sack the government man. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you've got to consider what Martin Charteris is. He is the Queen's public secretary, private secretary, rather. This is a position that's centuries old. One of the important things is to be very good at semaphore signalling. Mm, and the reason point. is, if a letter gets out, you don't want it to say, by the way, John, Liz would love you to sack Goff, mm. right? Charteris's job is to signal. The monarch's intention without, if the piece of paper ever gets in, sees the light of day, without dropping her in it. So to give you a contemporary example, and in no way do I want to draw any moral equivalence between Martin Charteris and the Queen and the operation of the Trump administration, I don't. But you will notice in many of the legal actions concerning Trump's corruption, the inability of anyone to say, put the hand on their heart and say, Trump said, hmm. get the President of Ukraine to do blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's the same as mafia trials. No one will hear the don say, I want you to go and put a hit on X. Hmm. And it's because in those worlds, communication is done by signaling. Now, when you look at that charterist letter and you seasonally adjust for the culture of communication that's required in that job, and when you look at it in the co- context of the unfolding correspondence, charterist is providing at the very minimum, a lot of comfort for Kerr to go in the direction of dismissal. In that letter, he actually provides a specific nudge to Kerr to go and look at the Forsey material, which Kerr would have undoubtedly have done. And, we know that third yeah. And the third thing is there is an absolute absence of any countervailing statements coming through the Charterist correspondence yeah. saying... By the way, we noticed in your later letter, Whitlam's plan is blah, blah, blah. That sounds like quite a reasonable thing. Shouldn't you perhaps equally consider, you know, letting that unfold? Perhaps that will be a less traumatic solution to the problem since we'd only take at most three months months longer to play out than alternatives like a dissolution. There's none of that. So there's a big absence of countervailing argument. There's a systematic nudging and the providing of comfort to Kerr to go in the dismissal direction. And that is exactly what Kerr
1: did, and that's what occurred, if I could put it like that. Um, yeah, it is interesting. If, you, if you, in that context, I think it's true because the other thing about telling about stressing to Kerr that is Charter stressing to Kerr about Fawcett, um, is that he's saying to him there is uh, there is legal opinion out there that says this is the extent this is the extent of the reserve powers. Now these reserve powers are not written down. They're not codified there's a big debate as to the extent to which they operate, what, what powers they give, for example, more orthodox use of the reserve powers is in denying a prime minister uh, a, a prime minister's demand for uh, an early election um, or it may be in removing a prime minister who has suffered a no confidence motion in the House of Representatives, where let's be honest that's where governments are formed, not the Senate but the 4 interpretation extends the understanding of confidence to both houses and says if you don't have the confidence of the senate you're somehow and you can't therefore get supply bills through you can't get money bills through the senate that uh that also goes to your legitimacy and the reserve powers then extend to the, the to the governor general uh, being able to dismiss that Prime Minister. That's, he's effectively not just put on the radar the idea that the reserve powers go there, but he's really signalled, I think, to Kerr that the palace is persuaded by the existence of this legal opinion that is out there, that is a bit of an outlier in jurisprudence at that time.
2: And, and how can we know what you've just said is right? We can know from various subsequent correspondence, like, Charteris's enthusiastic endorsement to Kerr of Kerr's actions. We can also imply it from the extreme lengths to which the palace went to stop this correspondence becoming public.
1: Although that's their general disposition. That, to... that, that's
2: true. But look, let's face it, when you see a 1,000 pages plus of a nudging and a comforting of Kerr to take a particular course of action, when the Prime Minister of Australia has a completely plausible alternative path that involved elect- elections, a half-senate election, and if that failed, a double dissolution, uh, which, of course, Whitlam would have lost, and would have only taken less than three months longer than this terrible, extreme mm. action which rented the fabric of Australian democracy for very many years.
1: Mm. I mean, the, the other thing that's really interesting about this, you know, just this particular moment, is that you know, th- there's the, the Queen's man in Australia... Talking to the Queen's man in Britain, the Queen herself, supposedly, we, we we're told, doesn't know anything about this, or at least doesn't know anything about you know the the sort of I was going to say, well, I won't say it, but it was you know what what it ends up being, um, you know, that the decisive moment ends up being so dramatic, and the Queen had no forewarning of it. It's the kind of as I said to you before, it's the Sergeant Schultz defence really, which was a sitcom. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty uh, prominent at the time. Well, let, let's um,
2: clarify that because there's in fact only one element of it that the Queen wasn't aware of. Yeah, the last And that bit. was the actual sacking. But there is evidence in the letters that the Queen appreciates the intense briefing she's getting. Yeah. From Kerr through Charteris. Charteris says so, yeah. right? So there can be no illusion that the Queen wasn't fully apprised but of Kerr's thinking the only thing she was protected from, and again, mm-hmm. this is a classic cut-out operation, the only thing she didn't know in advance was Kerr's intention to and actually his sacking of Whitlam on that day.
1: But, but Frank, neither, neither did Charteris, as we know from the letters, know that that was going to happen on that day.
3: Not on the day, but, I mean, as Chris pointed out earlier, that, that, that this issue had been um, part of that correspondence for yonks. For, for ages. For a year. For, for ages and ages. So, you know, the the, the all, all this stuff about, you know, what did the Queen, the Queen didn't know he was going to do it on November. I can't think of a more profoundly uninteresting question than that one from a historian's point of view. It, 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 it's so um, beside the point uh, in the context of this correspondence, it's barely worth even considering. I mean, what did people expect to find, you know, Dear John, uh, sack him, sign Lilybeth. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's just absurd. Um, it, it, it's clear that that that, um, that the sacking of the government, the intervention by the governor general, had been discussed in these letters. It had never been approved directly by by charterers. And in fact, you know, I mean, I think we have to take seriously. You know, that part of Charteris' discussion of the reserve powers, where he says that that this this could you know should only ever be done as an absolute last resort. And you could make the case that John Kerr should have listened to him, because if he had of, he wouldn't have gone on the eleventh of November nineteen seventy five. Kerr's justification for this was always feeble. It was mm-hmm. always about Oh, you couldn't have, it was the last date you could have an election was the 13th of December, as if in the greatest constitutional crisis in Australian history, an election in January would have been out of the question. <laughs> I mean, where does it say that in the Constitution, we don't disrupt people's summer holidays? Yeah. Um, and, and of course, we know Campbell Newman Uh, Just a few years ago, held a January election at the state levels. There's no reason in principle. And this is the
1: bloke who became premier from running out outside from outside of Parliament. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
3: indeed. Of course, an election could could have been held in the period that you wouldn't normally do it um, in in a crisis of this magnitude. So, Kerr's um, explanations for going on the 11th of November. Um, Have always been feeble. They still look feeble in these
2: in these documents. Um, He should have listened to Charteris.
3: He should have
2: listened to Charteris. Well, Charteris is really interesting because again, we've got to put ourselves in Charteris's mind. Now, there, there is. I would actually put those Charteris statements in the ass covering basket. And it's not the only arse covering statement he made. There's another one where he actually says to Kerr, you know, half Senate election, not a bad option. You'd you'd obviously, you know, that'd be a goer, wouldn't it, If, if that was on the table. These are classic things that very highly skilled people in those kinds of sensitive positions do. So that if the paperwork ever comes out, you've got your insurance policy A, B and C letters, right? But what you've got to do is interpret charterists you know, you've got to take those odd, tiny few slithers against the vast bulk of Charteris's statements, which are nudging and providing comfort to Kerr cur- to go in the dismissal direction,
1: including by simply not correcting him in any vigorous way in, in, in what appears to be a clear slide towards that uh, that outcome that he got yeah. to. Let's take a quick break there and continue the discussion in just a moment.
2: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Okay, welcome back. Now, let's just go back to this question we were discussing before the break about charterers. Um, you, you were saying, Christine, about the um, the idea of ask-covering, You know, uh, particularly because you're putting things in print, so you certainly put things there that... Uh, Show that you've, you know, you've you've been cautious and your probity is intact and and so forth. Is it possible? Uh, put this to you, Frank. Is it possible that uh, by saying you would only take this course of uh, sacking the prime minister as a last resort, is it possible that he's really saying so? When you get there, that is your justification for it. I mean, ipso facto, if you do it, it was the last resort, and, and because that does again going to Chris's point, that does actually. Get, uh, stand the sort of uh, the the sniff test when you look at what happened afterwards. I mean, he he um, he even gives Kerr comfort after the event, telling him that uh, that that even Whitlam at one point had, you know, grudgingly conceded that well, you know, the the the, the Governor General had acted within his constitutional responsibilities.
3: But what was Charteris going to do after the event, except give comfort? I mean, it's almost impossible to conceive. Of him writing in any other any other terms.
1: Um, he doesn't need to write at all though, surely. I mean, on that. He just he he does seem to be rather enthusiastic in sort of backing it in.
3: Uh well he's a courtier. Um, and I imagine he would have some I mean, I don't know. I imagine he would have seen his role as providing some sort of kind of psychological bolstering of a man who, quite frankly, by then was kind of falling apart. And was friendless. He was friendless. Well, he wasn't entirely friendless, but he'd certainly been abandoned by old friends.
1: Uh, I I didn't mean that literally, but, I mean, in Australia he was a pariah. Yeah, sure. And Uh, and a joke.
3: And, yeah, I mean, he's getting protesters every time he turns up in public. The Labor Party has a a ban on uh, any public event involving Kerr. They actually boycott... Uh, the opening of Parliament in 1976, um, Kerr, you know, in those letters after the dismissal going into 1976 comes across as a completely pathetic figure. He sends a copy of a letter from Robert Menzies congratulating him. Well, what what would you expect to have received from Robert Menzies except congratulations for dismissing <laughs> a Labor
2: government? Well, This, and, this is and, the I thing mean, about the, yeah. the picture of Kerr that you get from the letters yeah. is incredible. I mean, he is pathetic. For the whole year of the correspondence, it's it's his this kind of narcissistic neediness that he's engaging with the palace, which the palace is feeding. Well, and the... I've got to say, I agree with you, Mark. I think Martin Charteris's enthusiasm, uh, as expressed to her afterwards, goes way beyond what you'd officially expect.
3: I don't know what to expect. I mean, I reckon a courtier in that situation, confronted with the governor general in those circumstances, I, I didn't find it out of the ordinary at all. I mean, the, 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 the...
2: You didn't, but I thought it was a bit like yeah. Mark telling Vincent good dog uh, in the morning. <laughs> I, I tell you, I, the big thing... I do tell him that a lot. <laughs> there's, a whole, there's a whole dimension to the letters that doesn't focus on this, though, which is really, really important and we mustn't lose sight of, and that is that Whitlam... Had a very clear, simple plan that involved consulting the voters. Well,
1: let's just let's just for for the sake of completeness, actually lay out the situation that was happening there. Because essentially, you had an opposition leader who'd uh, had not been there long, Malcolm Fraser, who was playing hardball. Uh, I've written about you know fake conservatives in in the, in the last couple of weeks. Um, here we had a conservative who was trashing a long-held convention that oppositions did not block money bills in the Senate and was refusing to pass those uh, vital money bills so the business of government could go on. That was what the blockage was. And the question, question therefore, was how do you resolve it? And hence you had this escalating problem. It was getting worse. So Fraser, and we need to come to Fraser because he's such a critical player in this. and, and, And let's remember this too. He's the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. That's the sort of, you know, the kind of traditional full title What's loyal about breaking a convention and plunging the government into a constitutional crisis? Quite right,
2: quite right. And again, you know, it's very, you know, that's a question that we're all asking about the Trump administration too. But why
1: didn't Charteris say to the Governor-General, or does the Governor-General have no role in talking to the leader of the opposition? I don't know. I would have thought the Governor-General well, well, could.
2: The Governor-General well, Governor was he meeting did. with Malcolm Fraser, yeah. and this is, again, a tragic aspect of this. Uh, with the Prime Minister's Agreement... Kerr and Fraser were talking and in this Whitlam was behaving completely properly mm. and you'd have to say that Malcolm Fraser did not act properly and exploited Gough Whitlam's willingness to stick by the rules, to be transparent, to be open and, and that was cruelly exploited by the Fraser opposition.
1: And, and did he also exploit, we can't know this because they're all uh, no longer with us, but did he exploit what he understood to be Kerr's sympathies towards him in this he, he
3: very – I mean, I, I think one, one of the passages in these letters that really stood out for me was a, a, a letter um, in which um, Kerr was explaining really the bullying of him by both Whitlam and Fraser. And the Whitlam stuff, I, I, you know, didn't strike me as being particularly novel. I'd, I'd sort of read it. I right. mean,
1: Whitlam bullied everyone. But it, well,
3: indeed. But <laughs> the, the Fraser stuff's very interesting because Fra- he, he claims that Fraser said to him – that if you don 't use the reserve powers in this situation, uh, they will be gone forever they will be gone forever that is that it would damage the office, it would reduce the power of the office. Fraser had Kerr 's psychological measure, and that th- you know people like Paul Kelly have made this point, i think very well in the past and and Fraser also uh, threatened to to publicly criticise. Kerr on those grounds. So not only did he say you will uh, destroy the reserve powers, he also said I will go out and tell the Australian public that you are destroying the reserve powers. Now that was very calculated uh, as a piece of blackmail really and, and, and a threat because one thing that does come through these letters is Kerr... Uh, you know, really saw his role as to to strengthen and certainly preserve, but perhaps even strengthen the role of the crown, the role of the monarchy in in the Australian system. An idea that we'd find preposterous today, where you know the monarchy has a, a less important place in kind of civic life. But that's that's not how Kerr came to this and of course that is some of the common ground with charterers who well, as a courtier mm-hmm. that's his job you know well that's right yeah. but
1: did they did they serve that interest well because I mean they plunged the crown mm, as right. much in as much as it you know has an Australian dimension into a high degree of Yeah, but they
2: got away with it. You see, here we are 50 years later and we're still living in a constitutional monarchy. Mm, I mean, it really is kind of embarrassing. The (laughs) other other thing is, is, you know, the historical fact is getting lost in so much of these discussions that at the time of the dismissal, moderate liberals who were also under a lot of pressure
1: Mm.
2: were generally understood in Parliament House as being ready to shift and let the budget bills through. Yeah. So there's that. They may not have lasted
1: another two days.
2: There's that. But I want to come back to the other fascinating dimension of the letters, which is the very clear plan that Whitlam had privately communicated to Kerr. Yes. Which went like this. The budget bill's going to get presented again. They get knocked back. I want to call a half-senate election.
1: Which the Governor-General has to uh, approve and which he would authorise on the basis of that twice being provision. That's right. So
2: so the half-senate election happens. Whitlam would have done badly. Whitlam's plan was to, whatever the result, to put the budget bills again. If they were lost again, his plan was to call a general election for February 1976.
1: A double dissolution election.
2: Well, I'm not... No, not sure I won't either. commit to that detail, but well, he definitely mm. wanted a federal election. Whether it was a double diss or not, it was kind of mm. academic. Yeah. I Might think it was just a,
3: going to be the House at that stage was the idea, wasn't it? Just, just the House. You, you know, the, well, he would back. have just turned House over the Senate. Yeah. I'm not held. even
2: sure he spelled yeah. out in that detail yeah. to, to Kerr, but Kerr had yeah. the essentials. He communicated it to the palace. So there was a very clear path that was an alternative to this traumatic rent in Australia's but democratic was it a, fabric. W- but was Why it Why did not path? the palace... Explore that with Kerr if they were so, so much the non player they claim to be in this.
3: And could I, but I, could I answer why that wouldn't have necessarily been attractive to Kerr? I mean,
2: whether it was there, or not, we're talking about the palace the pala- here. Yeah. The palace didn't, did not, despite being briefed on it clearly by Kerr, did not ever visit that in the correspondence.
3: Yeah, I mean, the silences in the palace's correspondence I think are difficult to interpret because mm. there's a kind... I mean, it, the constitutional situation is that the Governor-General is supposed to be running the show. It's not meant to be run from by the, the, the Queen's private secretary or indeed by the Queen. So well, we, hold we on. can't... isn't, isn't you, the
2: elected government of Australia supposed to be running the show and that's what it comes sorry, down when to? Sorry,
3: when I say running the show, performing the role of the head of state in Australia, Um, it, you know, under the constitution it's performed by the Governor-General and, and...
2: And there lies the problem.
3: Well, yes, I know. No, it is. It's a. Stru- I mean, I'm not sort of making a structural point here. I'm, I'm sort of making the point why we, we need to be careful about interpreting what's not in those letters, that's all. Um, but the, the, the half-Senate thing's interesting. I mean, it's quite clear from reading the letters that charters didn't have a clue about, you know, uh, finer points of the Australian Constitution like the role of half-Senate elections. Um... Kerr was concerned about the half send election for two reasons. Uh, he, he thought that it wouldn't secure supply or it might not secure supply. Which was a fair judgment, um,
1: but it's a political judgment in a sense. It was a,
3: it was a, a political judgment. In, in this case, I think as a part of the scheme, the idea was that Fraser would in fact grant temporary supply until February. Um, but the other aspect that was problematic from the half-cent election point of view was the, the, the possibility that non-Labour premiers, or at least a couple of them, wouldn't issue the writs. And, and this was problematic. I mean, this is one of the points at which this whole story becomes one about Australia and Britain, because mm-hmm. this is the world before the Australia Act's each of the Australian states had direct relations with the British government through the Foreign and Commonwealth Office at that stage. Very How bizarre story. is that? Mm. But that was the, the case until 1986. And what, what all of this basically meant is that the, the, the states were, in base, were not only in a position to not issue the writs, but that this could potentially have drawn the Queen into the controversy. If Whitlam had advised her for instance, to, to basically advise the, the, the state governors to issue the writs in the face of opposition from state premiers like Bjorki Peterson, for instance. And, so, and you know.
2: that is all true. The fact stands that there was a perfectly good political path to be explored and tested that Whitlam had shared privately with Kerr, that Kerr had briefed the on, and that was never revisited.
1: And the theory about that is that Kerr was unattracted to it because it had been made clear to him either explicitly or implicitly that if he didn't cooperate with that, that the Prime Minister would advise the Queen to withdraw Kerr's commission and the Queen, and Charteris had made this clear to Kerr, the Queen would be duty-bound to take the advice of the Prime Minister and so it was I'll sack you before you sack me Exactly, and Mm. this is
2: the bizarre thing about the whole incident it is that the Queen was fully complying with the Australian Constitutional Convention that she followed the Prime Minister's advice, yet her vice regal representative wasn't. Hmm. Now, how do we square that?
1: Yeah, there's so many. It's so weird because we're talking about conventions within conventions and delegations. I mean, people say, for example, that the Queen would not have the power to do what the Governor-General did, but the Governor-General had delegated powers from the Queen. How do you make sense it's, of that? It's
2: extremely simple. If Kerr had shown the same proprietary as the Queen did in this situation, Whitlam's political solution would have been explored. It would yes. have worked or it didn't. And as you, Mark, made the point earlier, you know, it could have ended up being, with Kurt, calling a double dissolution anyway down the track in the same way it did on November the 11th. But after the exhaustive exploration of the political path that Whitlam had laid out that could have yielded the same result, the result that was always going to happen eventually anyway, namely the election of the Fraser government, but without this terrible trauma for Australia.
1: All right, well, let's go to... um to To another revelation, perhaps the single most sort of interesting revelation out of this just because of its uh, you know it, it's such a novel detail. And that is that Gough Whitlam rings Charteris in the afternoon shortly after having had his commission uh, withdrawn. It's four fifteen am
3: three I think 315
1: 315
3: 315 uh, oh eight. no no you're right four sorry 415
1: <laughs> 415 in London yeah. and Charteris takes a call yeah. from the Prime Minister of Australia the ex-prime Minister of Australia who makes it point he's ringing in a private capacity as in he's no longer the Prime minister and he explains uh, two things we, we understand from these letters from Charteris' account that one uh, supply has now been passed because the deadlock that the Prime Minister haven't been sacked the the the, uh, the government supply bills sailed through the Senate, uh, and Whitlam himself has had a vote of confidence in the House of Representatives, which I again add is the place where governments are formed in our system. Uh, and under that, on that basis, Whitlam's of the view that he ought to be reinstated as prime minister. Now, I think the, one of the important details here is he's telling this to us. He says he's doing so as a as a as a private citizen. Uh, but he's wanting Charderis not necessarily to get the Queen to this view but to put this salient, these salient points to the Governor-General, to Sir John Kerr. That's I mean, the very fact that this happened is quite interesting. It shows that uh, Whitlam was still pulling moves um, even after the event, uh, not that it actually added up to anything.
2: Desperate regard action having been played like a violin by Kerr. I mean, it's it's such a tragedy. Gough was such a legend in so many respects. I'm a massive Whitlam fan. Um, his government in, it's due still for a further recalibration in a positive direction in terms of its uh, standing in posterity, but flawed, a flawed character in that he overestimated his own analysis, wasn't savvy enough about the deception going on around him, did not workshop it sufficiently to be able to identify treachery, as it could have played into the process and Kerr just did him like a dinner, sad. sad. Yeah. Sad.
1: <laughs> Speaking of dinner, didn't, after he was sacked, didn't he, I'm just going from memory here, I haven't looked this up recently, but, but didn't, um, didn't, Whitlam then go and have a steak for lunch, and when he could have actually told Labor senators not to pass the supply bill, and uh, can anyone rem- remember? Yeah, I those think details? that's correct. He yeah. went off to the lodge uh, to to have a, a steak, a t-bone yeah, or something. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and it, I've got to say, it's one of the one of the flaws of you know in inverted commas the good guys in politics, the good guys and the good gals in politics, is that they tend to assume that the world and people in it behave like them, that they observe the proprieties. And that's why the 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 kind of the good guys and girls tend to get done over so often by disreputable players who bend and break conventions in the in order to acquire and and wield power in whatever way they need to. Again, you know, compare and contrast the Republicans and the Democrats in the U.S. at the minute. You've, you've got to not assume the other side is going to obey the rules, even while you adhere to a proper set of it, principles.
1: Even if they are the ones who claim the sort of moral high ground as the defenders of those sort of bedrock institutions and conventions. I mean, that, that's supposedly the great Yeah, well, you, Mark, you've got
2: to watch what people do, not yeah. just listen to what they say.
1: Well, and that's one of the lessons, and I think we've seen this lesson lived out through the Trump period as well, and that is that conventions can simply be broken. They can, if, if it's not written down, if it's not codified, um, then you can simply ignore it. If there's a convention that a minister should uh, should resign when um, certain things happen, and yes. you just simply bluster through, after a while, the news the news caravan moves on, and, uh, a- and you're still is, there.
2: And this is such a tragic dimension of the palace letters, in that even through Kerr's eyes and pen, you see Gough Whitlam behaving with complete propriety according to the rules, being open, fully briefing him, extending courtesies to the, as it turns out, treacherous leader of the opposition, Malcolm Fraser, behaving completely properly while those on the other end of the manoeuvre were not doing the same.
3: What about his his contemplation of presenting Kerr with the budget bills having only been passed by one house. Yes,
1: that was an interesting... That doesn't yeah. sound
3: very proper to me. and I'm, Admittedly, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but it doesn't sound very did, proper. Did he do it? Well, no, he discussed it as a plan.
2: Well, I, I think exploring all options in that circumstance was a good idea. That's not one I'd like or would think would even have a faint hope of working. But if so you're that would in a be crisis, up to the GG
1: to decide. If the GG was prepared to give royal assent to uh, such bills, then I guess be it on him. Um, Well,
3: the idea was that, yeah, and then it'd go off to the High Court five minutes later and the High Court would deliberate on it immediately over the next two weeks. But it it doesn't, on the face of it, seem like...
2: I don't think it's a a heinous thing to suggest as a possible solution. I I don't think it's a great option. If you look at the correspondence, as Kerr lays out Whitlam's position, it's systematically pretty good, Hmm. and especially compared to what we know that Kerr and Fraser were doing at the same time,
1: so it's all th- th- we do have to be careful here, and I'm, I know I'm talking to two historians, and you'll know this better than me. But we, we always have to be careful about adding up the the, the various bits of a sequence uh, to 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 construct the endpoint when we know the endpoint, and they didn't. The participants at the time didn't. So. Um, it does, and I think you can, as you've been very persuasively putting, Chris, you can certainly see this pattern in the tone of the correspondence, in the things that aren't said, and in the fact that things are said a number of times or, or floated, that corrections aren't made, say, by Charterist to occur in terms of the direction and the, and the kind of energy of his, uh, of his correspondence. You can certainly do all of that, and I think it does add up to a pretty persuasive case that, um, that the palace knew where this was going, um, or at least knew there was a strong chance that it was going in that direction. Um, anyway, history then gets to see what, you know, people get to see what happens, and then history makes judgments about it, uh, after that. Um, what are the judgments of the various players? Kerr's obviously uh, held in very, low regard by just about everyone.
2: And these letters won't help that because he comes across as so personally and pathetically needy.
1: Yeah, damp.
2: He does come across as needy. Yeah, I've,
3: I've thought about this one. Does Kerr come out of them better or worse and he is already, and I'm not sure. I, I don't think they do do him any great favours. And I mean, Toomey
1: wrote in her piece that, yeah. uh, that that it showed a man under a, a good deal of pressure over a long period of time, which I thought was a generous way of putting it. But it might be fair too.
3: But that's fair. I mean, it does show someone who I think genuinely believes. I mean, it's bound up, of course, in his own his own ego, but genuinely believes that the the office of the Governor-General and the place of the monarchy in Australia need to be protected. He clearly sees this as a mission. Um, uh, whether that you know, means that we look at him in a more favourable light, I probably doubt. Um, the, the letters become increasingly pathetic. Some of the most pathetic, actually, are during the campaign itself when you get these long, tedious passages in which he is essentially raising what he'll do if Whitlam wins. Um, and, you know, they come across as a man uh, who, who's utterly obsessed with face, with, with you know, mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. Um, how he will look. And, in fact, that is one of the things that comes through quite a lot of the letters. Do you remember there's a passage there, for instance, during, you know, really one of the climactic moments of this crisis where he, he says to charterists, you know, I'm worried that the Australian public will think that I'm not interested that i 'm not involved that i 'm disengaged from this crisis that 's going on now, on the face of it, that should be the role of a Governor general in a constitutional monarchy that this is a political dispute between uh, Fraser and, and Whitlam between the coalition and labor and, and he should he should be basically nowhere near it um, at yeah. that stage
1: he has and, no role yeah.
3: and, and yet he wants to mediate so that people will know that he 's engaged and involved and interested. Um, it, it was a very, um, he uses the term himself, um, he calls himself at one point an activist and an extrovert and in, in a sense it was an activist understanding of the role of the Governor-General. Yeah, he was a
1: judicial activist or a constitutional activist in, and, 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 mm-hmm. and adventurist really uh, mm-hmm. in, in some of these things because the extension of the reserve powers uh, that he eventually uh, gave gave vent to was very novel in Australia. Uh, it, was a, it was a big risk and, and and even though, as you point out, Chris, uh, the Crown has not been uh, sloughed off, if I can put cast off uh, in Australia in, in the 45 years since, that, they didn't know that at the time. He did actually put at risk uh, the Queen's relationship with Australia by this cataclysmic resolution as he, uh, that he enacted.
2: Well, I, I tell you, Mark, I'm pretty disappointed in Liz um I'm a ferocious Australian republican but one with a real soft spot for Elizabeth II. Uh I love the way that she's for example never wavered on things like having her husband walk a couple of meters behind her as as monarch. Love that symbolism. Um well,
1: anyone who's actually made speeches at the second well, in the second world war and now is you know sort of you got to impressive. give some respect to.
2: Um but the fact that she, you know, that we can see in these 1000 plus letters uh this monarch indulge something that really damaged our nation, I just cannot imagine what on earth she was thinking. And I think the big takeaway as we kind of reflect longer on these letters needs to be not so much a focus on Kerr specifically or Whitlam specifically or Charteris and the Queen but a focus on how our system is vulnerable while the Constitution stays as it is Hmm. to A, uh the character of a person in that position, but B, our continuing vulnerability and susceptibility to behind the scenes shaping of expectations, nudging of behaviours uh, that are not in our national interest. Mm. So I think at some point we need to stand back from the particularities and look at this systemically and go, okay, this really is the time when we've got to step up as a nation, have the mature conversation about how we detach from the Brits and become our own people. And I think that that moment of self-respect and reflection is necessary in order to secure our system against a future dismissal.
1: It's a very good point. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull made the point yesterday that, um, you know, Britain is a foreign country. Uh, We found out in the Section 44 uh, expulsions not so long ago just in 2017 that uh, you can't be a hold of a british citizenship and be in the australian Parliament and yet we see these these you know fundamental decisions about the the, the life and death of, of governments and the uh, constitutional powers and rights in this in this country determined by a foreign head of state it is an extraordinary situation and it is very surprising that it continues i just want to very quickly Go, go to two things because we're, we're getting quite close to time here. But uh, I started off asking about Kerr. The, the other two key players, of course, are Whitlam and Fraser. I'd argue that both of them have come out better than Kerr, even though even, even though Fraser was, you know, the big wrecker in, in 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 his gesture. But apart from the fact that he sort of vectored toward the the, the centre left in his in his later years. He and Goff actually had a rapprochement more and and some sort of um, some sort of uh, you know good relations. I, I wouldn't know if it was you could call it a friendship. But what what do you think, Frank? About I mean, because obviously Goff was martyred as a result of the whole thing. Um, what 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 are your views on both of those?
3: I mean, if the question's sort of how does Whitlam come through mm-hmm. in, in 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 these letters? Uh, I think he comes through if Kerr's account is accurate. He comes through as someone who actually wanted to to break the Senate, who wanted to break its 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 power over money bills. Uh, Kerr refers to Whitlam seeing this in in the sort of context. This was Australia's equivalent of the United Kingdom between 1909 and 1911, which of course broke the power of the House of Lords. You know, the, the subject of Neil Blewett's great. PhD and, 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 um, book, uh, that, that Whit- Whitlam saw this as the moment he was going to do that. And, and again, I think that perhaps helps explain uh, you know, uh, this conservative lawyer Kerr's uh, response to, to that. Um, sort of a defence of the, the Senate, Exactly, yeah. a kind of defence of, si- of the, the system, Lords. the constitution, yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think this does any great harm to Whitlam's reputation, um, but I, I think it emphasises the extent to which the players, such as Whitlam and Kerr, I don't know about Fraser, but certainly Whitlam and Kerr saw this as a historic moment. That 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 you know that in that the way that term is used colloquially as a moment that was a kind of you know uh, uh, a, a crossing of a Rubicon if you like mm. and 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 there was seen to be a hell of a lot at stake by these players. Um, it's probably true of Fraser as well. I mean his career was at stake essentially, but I think that Whitlam and Kerr also saw the constitution as being at stake in a way that I'm not sure Fraser did.
1: Chris, a, a final observation here is that. For all of the explosiveness of this event, the, the sort of constitutional violence of and democratic violence of, of, of decommissioning a government, the people vindicated it only a month later. You know, in the in the December election, they they firmly tossed out the Labor government,
2: and that was always going to happen. But it could have happened in a relatively normal political way, as sketched out by Whitlam to Kerr and related to the Palace and. That's the big problem with this story. There was a perfectly respectable alternative path that wasn't going to take that much longer to resolve in the inevitable election of a Fraser government.
1: But you don't think the people were casting... Well, clearly they weren't casting... If they were casting a judgment on the actions of Kerr, they were casting one in favour of them.
2: There's a whole dimension of this story we haven't discussed and is not getting discussed in relation to the letters and that is the Murdoch media's role in manufacturing an exaggerated sense of crisis around a fairly untidy government uh, and aiding and abetting the person I think that's that's very historically due for a, a severe caning and that's Fraser. Because as we discussed Kerr, we're neglecting Fraser. Uh, mm. The issue was the opposition blocking a government's budget bills in the Senate. Now, Frank's just pointed out a very pertinent fact. Um, you know, he's put it fairly trenchantly as as Whitlam being out to break the budget powers of the Senate. But another way of putting that is that Whitlam was on a path to bring into line a change in relation to an upper house's money bills that had been made before World War One in Britain itself, right? So it, I think... Australia comes out of this as real foot draggers in terms of doing our constitutional housekeeping. Never. And there's, there's really good historical work by Linda Colley, uh, whose thesis is essentially that countries that neglect to do their homework, upgrade, keep in good order their constitutions every so often have, uh, overdue corrections as the tensions built into the system by that lack of attention mm. to good constitutional housekeeping, go through an exaggerated recalibration.
1: As indeed you could say was the case of the entire Whitlam government. In a reform sense, I mean it it carried the political cost for doing a number of things that had needed to be done for a long time. Its reform uh, dance card was, you know, sort of unmanageable. In, doing
2: in doing the homework for Australia that the. 23 years of continuous Liberal and country party rule hadn't done. Mm. They're quite right. And, you know, another underlying factor which must never be forgotten is that the Conservatives did not accept that it was legitimate for Australia to have a Labor government.
1: And Malcolm
2: Fraser's, (laughs) the Fraser opposition's blocking of supply was essentially about you guys, you're not legitimate, rulers of Australia, and get out of our way. We want our power back.
3: They'd effectively forced Whitlam to an election the year before by threatening to block supply when Snedden was still there. Yeah, That's so, right.
2: Yeah. And if we don't have a system where each side of politics accepts that from time to time the other is going to be in power, you end up losing your democracy.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. And let's finish on that point. Uh, we could keep talking about this obviously for some time and I'm sure uh, there'll be a lot of in, in um, you know scholarly inspection of these this enormous uh, sort of treasure trove of correspondence but also the issues that it points to around this controversy. It's been fascinating discussing it with two of the very best in the business, Frank Bongiorno and Chris Wallace. And uh, thanks for being with us on Democracy Sausage again uh, and uh, look forward to talking to you at the beginning of next week. Bye for now.